Yeah. So yes, we're continuing this morning um, our Advent, our little two-part Advent uh, series, and we're staying in the same uh, bit of scripture that we were in last week. So those of you who were here last week or have managed to listen online this week, we were in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, and we were thinking about the, the stump of Jesse, the, uh, the, the, the remnant of Israel, uh, and this amazing picture of hope that Isaiah uh, paints, uh, and the expectation of the Jewish people that, that their Messiah was going to uh, come uh, and, and rescue them. Uh, and we're going to pick up on that today and look at some other um, sort of aspects of that. And one of the things I want us to be thinking about is, is, is stories, beginnings, middles, and end. Uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the cinema to see uh, the latest attempt to, um, to take Frank Herbert's book, Dune, which is a, if you know, it's a massive, complex novel, which covers political, environmental, religious, it's just sort of a parable around those themes. Um, and it's been, uh, many people have attempted to make films from it before and, and generally failed. Uh, I think they're, they're doing quite a bit better this time. But the point I want to make about the film is that, that they've made a film at the first half of the book. It sort of stops in the middle of the story. Um, it sort of comes to a bit of a, a conclusion, a bit, there's a bit of a hiatus, uh, like a chapter closing. But it's not complete. And it struck me that sometimes we, we can approach Christmas a, a little bit like that. Uh, the story isn't complete. God comes into our world. He fulfills uh, some of these great promises that he made in Isaiah. But it's not complete. We've not got to the end of the story. We may look beyond Christmas and think about uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made as he went to the cross. We think about his resurrection, his ascension, Pentecost. But it's still not the end of the story. And we noted last week that here in Isaiah, things are moving uh, on multiple levels and in multiple uh, time frames. So I want to sort of look ahead, really, this morning to the second part. Jesus came, uh, and we celebrate Jesus coming into this world uh, at Christmas, but he's coming again. And as we were thinking of preparing our hearts for his, uh, to, to respond to his first coming and to celebrate that at Christmas, I want us to think this morning about preparing our hearts for this time when he is coming again. So let's just refresh our memories uh, and read uh, those verses from Isaiah chapter 11. And we read that a, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, 
he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. So here's a picture of a future reality. And I think you'll agree with me it's a future reality. We don't see wolves living peacefully with lambs today. We don't see leopards lying down next to young goats. This is a picture of something yet to come. It's a picture of great peace. We lit the peace candle this morning, and we're going to be thinking a little bit about uh, that elusive peace in our world. But Isaiah is saying there is this time coming. Jesus, the rightful king, will rule over the earth, and he will rule with righteousness, with justice, and he will bring true peace. Yes, it's poetic language, but I believe there's a reality to it as well. Now, the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah who was going to come and liberate them from their oppression, liberate them from the Roman Empire that was uh, ruling over them at the time. And because they were expecting this, um, this, sort of phys- this, this delivery in a sort of a physical sense, Uh, they missed a number of things. The first thing they missed was the fact that the kingdom of God has this spiritual dimension. Jesus wasn't just coming to save them from their oppressors, important as that was. He was actually coming to save them from themselves, from their sin. They missed that completely. And yet Isaiah emphasizes that time and time again. As he, as, as he talks about the sin of Israel and the need for Messiah to come and rescue them uh, from uh, that. And we latch on to that really easily. We celebrate Jesus as Savior, the one who came to save us from our sins. We're singing about that. We're talking about that all the time. But I'd like to suggest that we emphasize, just as the Jewish people emphasize the physical nature of the kingdom, and miss the spiritual, I think we can have a tendency to emphasize the spiritual and miss the physical nature of it too. I think even our Christmas story can play into that a little bit. We have this nice picture, don't we, of a, of a, of a quaint little stable with some furry animals all gazing adoringly at this little baby in a manger. It's otherworldly, isn't it? It's not really down to earth. It doesn't actually reflect the reality that Jesus came. He was in an ordinary house, probably in a shared room, 
with animals, think like your pets, your dog, your cat, all sort of wandering around and everyone. It's the ordinary hustle and bustle of everyday life. And the picture of the new kingdom that God's going to bring in is it's not something remote and heavenly, but it's a new earth. Heaven comes down to earth. We sang that already. Jesus is bringing heaven down to earth. It will be earthed in heaven today. Our destiny is a renewed and restored earth. It's physical. Jesus will physically rule over a physical kingdom. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, Israel and the church. But, and it's a big but, it's not the role of the church, it's not our role to realize this physical kingdom. There's a warning. The church has often got that wrong in times past and tried to enforce or establish the kingdom of God in worldly terms on its own. And I think, you know, in, to, 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 to pick up on, on one of the, the current cultural memes, it's not our job to save the planet. It's not our job to save the planet. That's actually God's job. But we are called to steward it because the physical creation is important. God calls us to look after it, but not to save it. So I think that's the first thing that we miss when we think about our future destiny and the implications of that for our life today. The kingdom of God is physical. God will liberate Israel from their physical oppressors as well as save them from their sins. And the same is true for us today. I also think there's a... a, uh, a bit of a mistaken, another mistaken narrative in the church, and you can feel free to argue with me afterwards about whether you agree with this or not, that, that somehow the story goes like this. Yeah, God chose Israel, and their job was to be an example to the other nations, to show the other nations how to live. But they failed to do that, uh, and so Jesus comes. He actually brings God's kingdom uh, to earth. Uh, he establishes the church, um, and the church somehow is, is plan B because plan A failed and now it's all, all right and the church is, is helping to make the world a better place. Well, in a sense, that's, that's true. Um, but as we read Isaiah and as we thought last week about the, 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 the run-up to this chapter, Isaiah's message of hope comes after a whole sequence of God's judgment on the nations, including Israel and the surrounding nations, for not following his ways, for drifting away from him. And I would suggest that when we look at ourselves and the church today, we see so much of that today. You can flick into something like, uh, just on a couple of chapters, and flick into Isaiah chapter 19, and you know, we see things that could so easily be describing our world today. God says he will incite the Egyptians. They will fight against each, his brother and each against his neighbor. How much infighting is there 
uh, not only in society at large, polarization between different views, but even, sad to say, within the church. We fight brother against brother. He says, the princes of Zion are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wise advisors has become stupid. Do we not see that in the world today? We look at our leaders and think, mm, I'm not sure that's a terribly wise decision you're making. The advisors have become stupid because we rely on our own understanding and not on God's wisdom. And the church when it works well, does amazing things and brings God's light to bear in the darkness. But so often, we're just muddling through and getting it wrong, I suggest, much as Israel did. And we too can miss the point that we need Jesus to save us. It's a parallel story to that of Israel. The parallels, the more I look into them, the more I find the parallels are both discouraging and yet encouraging because God doesn't give up on Israel and he doesn't give up on us either. But we need saving. So that's the second point. The third point then is looking again at the context of what uh, Isaiah is speaking of here. He's writing into this situation of impression and injustice, he says, he says to the, the, the rulers and the people of Israel, you know, you're oppressing the poor. You're not taking care of the poor amongst you. You're not acting justly towards one another. And of course, there's this great context of, of violence. And as I think we've said, I think we're really no different in our world today. We live in a very similar context. We can see signs of oppression and injustice around us. We can look, we can think, well, maybe we're a bit insulated in our little UK bubble, our Western world bubble from the violence in the world. Wars rage in other parts of the planet, but we're sort of safe from it. But oppression, injustice, I mean, you've only got to think of some of the the modern-day slavery issues that impinge onto us, how much of our decision-making and our demand for for cheap goods is actually driving economic oppression of other people. I was quite challenged by these words as I read them. And these things bring God's judgment. There is violence in the world today. It's not pleasant. And that leads us to another aspect of the Christmas story that I think gets, often gets airbrushed out. If we turn to Matthew chapter 2, we read this wonderful story about these uh, wise men, these astrologers, these um, scholars of the day, reading the heavens and coming to visit Jesus. And they bring gifts. And yes, that features in our in our little nativity story. But then we go on to read that this annoyed King Herod. And he reacts against this by uh, slaughtering all the male children in the Bethlehem vicinity who were two years old and under. 
he commits this atrocious and extremely violent crime. And have you ever asked yourself, why does Matthew include that in the Christmas story? And why do we airbrush it out? Well, I'd like to suggest that it's included to remind us and to perhaps get us to confront the reality of the depth of evil in the world that Jesus came to redeem. And I just want us to pause just briefly and think, you know, we, we celebrate peace and joy and hope at Christmas. And that's absolutely right, because these are the things that Jesus is bringing. But he's bringing these things in the middle, in the midst of a world which is just so, so messed up. There is unspeakable violence that characterizes both the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. There's this uh, slaughter of these children at the beginning. There's his death on the cross at the end. His ministry is within and to a, a violent world, then and now. And it's included here to draw attention to the depths of evil to which men can sink, I think. And the Bible tells us, it warns us that these things will increase as we approach the time of his return. And that all sounds quite depressing, doesn't it? But the point is it's there to, to forewarn us so we can be prepared. And the good news is that within that, for those who persevere in faith, they will, we will shine like stars in the darkness. That's our calling, to stand in the midst of these difficult times. We need to be building that resilience into us. One of the saddest things uh, I think I have uh, possibly uh, encountered, it's really hard to I've seen individuals I've known who've had a genuine relationship with Jesus, but then things get tough. Things don't work out the way they were expecting. And they said, well, I never expected it to be like this. I thought you know, I'd come to Jesus and it'll all be fine. And they walk away from their faith, and it's terribly sad. I just want to encourage us to be putting down our roots deeper and deeper and deeper so that when the storms come, uh, and we'll think about this again in the new year when we look at Matthew's gospel, you know, when the storms come, when the rains come, our houses are built on rock and not on sand. Do our roots go deep? A tree that has deep roots will stand in the storm. A tree that has shallow roots will be blown over. And I think that's why Jesus warns us of these things. I think that's why the Bible warns us of these things. It's not to make us feel bad about the world. It's to encourage us to put down deep roots. So I just want to leave us really with a question. Are we looking forward to Christ's return with as much enthusiasm and with the same uh, intensity of preparation as we are looking forward to Christmas? You know, when Jesus came into the world, God had been silent for 400 years. The prophets had ceased to speak. But there was this sense of expectation he was coming 
After Pentecost, the apostles, you read the New Testament, the, the apostles had this thought that they were, they were expectant for Jesus. They thought he was coming back pretty soon. And yet 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. Have we actually sort of said, oh yeah, perhaps he's coming back, but it's been a long time, so it's not likely to be any time soon? Or do we have that real sense of expectation? And are we prepared for the fact that he might return tomorrow? Or maybe even this afternoon? Would that disrupt our plans? Certainly disrupt our planning for Christmas, wouldn't it? So, but anyway. And Jesus, I just want to leave us with the thought that Jesus, if we go into, towards the end of Matthew's gospel, gives us many parables, I think, that help us prepare for these things. So in Matthew, I'm just going to quickly go through these things. We haven't got time to look at them deeply. But in Matthew chapter 22, we have this parable of the marriage feast. People are invited. It's situated, this par- these parables are all situated with, really within Jesus' end times discourse. He's talking about the time when he's going to return. And in Revelation, we read about the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the Lamb of God, Jesus, returns to earth. And I think these things tie together. The parable of the marriage feast. Lots of people are invited, but someone's too busy playing with their new possession. They're going to go and test, out their, test drive their new oxen. Others have just got married, so they're a bit preoccupied with that, so they don't want to come to the marriage feast. We don't want to be like that, do we? Not ready when Jesus returns. And we can so easily just get caught up with everything that's going on day by day. And then a couple of chapters later, Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, people were eating and feasting and partying, and yet the rains came and only Noah and his family were prepared. There's the parable of the ten uh, virgins. With, you know, we all know the story of the, the ten virgins with their lamps. Half of them have got enough oil, and the others hadn't. And here's a clue to how we prepare, isn't there? Again, it's the coming of the bridegroom. It's Jesus' return that he's talking about. And the lamps, the lamp, the light represents God's word. My word Thy word is a lamp to my feet. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit as he fills us. Word and spirit. Are we pursuing these things? And then the parable of the talents reminds us that Jesus will come and he'll say, what have you done with what I have given you? Have you invested it wisely? Or have you buried it in the ground? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to restore and renew all things. The future is bright. But we live in this in-between times. So let's be pursuing the things of God now so that we are prepared for when he returns. As we celebrate this Christmas, as we celebrate his coming to earth, the inauguration of his kingdom. Let's also be looking forward to celebrate the completion in all its wonderful fulfillment when he comes again. Let's be ready, shall we? Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that you have revealed so much to us of your heart, of your plans, 
of your purposes. We thank you that you have placed these things in our hearts. You have given us your word that we might prepare ourselves to be ready to receive all that you have for us. Lord, we look to your coming again when you come to judge the world, not with trepidation, but with a sense of expectancy. Lord, as we look at the brokenness of our world, we turn to you and we want to catch something of your heart for it. Lord, help us to be alert in these times, to focus on you, to be seeking after your kingdom. Lord, it is so easy to get caught up in the things uh, of, of the day today. And Lord, these things are important, but you told your disciples to seek first your kingdom not to worry about the other things because they would be added to it. And so, Lord, as we prepare to, to celebrate these momentous events when you physically came into the world you had created, when you came into its brokenness and its messiness, you came as one of us. Lord, as we begin to celebrate uh, these Uh, momentous events. May our eyes also be on that time when you will come again, when every eye will see you in your glory. And many will run in terror, we read, because you come to judge, but others will rejoice because you have come to bring freedom and peace and hope and life. Help us to be preparing our hearts and encouraging others to look to you at this time too. That you would truly be glorified in and through us. Amen. Amen.